five, four, command engine start, two, one. start again this week with a rocket launch that was Blue Origin's new Shepard spacecraft heading into space for the first time with paying customers uh, and we'll have more on this later in the show. Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Chelsea White. As well as Bezos in space, this week we've got intriguing news of methane on Mars and what that might mean for life on the planet. We've also got an encounter with the Borg, <laughs> uh, the latest on COVID in the UK with our coronavirus editor Kat Delange and the study that shows how tomato plants have a kind of nervous system. But first, take advantage of our summer sale and let New Scientist Academy's science online courses take you on an inspiring journey of learning, whether into the mysteries of the universe, the intricacies of the human brain, or the vital complexities of our immune systems. These interactive online courses are designed to be not just educational, but accessible and entertaining too. You can start and finish each one whenever you like and work through at your own pace, guided by tutorials from world-renowned experts in their respective fields. Why not sign up now and explore the wonders of science this summer? With our summer sale, you can save up to £100 off the standard rate. Just go to newscientist.com slash courses. Now, this week on Monday in England, most COVID restrictions were lifted. The day was called Freedom Day, uh, and I can't, I can't even go there. Um, and it came as hospital and intensive care unit admissions in England rose to the above the level where restrictions were introduced last year, and they continue to rise at the same rate as in the previous wave. And uh, we got this Freedom Day when more than 1,200 scientists backed a letter in The Lancet saying that the decision to lift those restrictions in England was an unethical experiment which poses a serious threat to the rest of the world. And that's because lifting restrictions at a time when infection rates are rising could stimulate the evolution of new vaccine-resistant variants, and then they would spread around the world. So, Kat, you're our coronavirus editor. <laughs> Why have we done this? Well, that's a very good question. So uh, Jose Martin Moreno at the University of Valencia, who advises the World Health Organization, has said it in these terms. He said, we cannot understand why this is happening in spite of the scientific knowledge that you have, which kind of sums up my feelings on it. But obviously, um, so one of our reporters pointed out that lockdowns are put in place um, as a kind of emergency measure. And so you could argue that the emergency nature is passing because of the vaccination rates that we have in, in England at the moment. But, you know, the scientific communities really come together to say that the emergency really doesn't seem to be over and doing this could have really serious repercussions. What has the UK government said in public about why they're doing it? I mean, they haven't admitted, or have they, that, that we're going for herd immunity by, you know, by mass infection, by letting it go through the population, especially on, on children. Have they actually said that now or not? No, they haven't said that specifically, but it does seem to be the strategy that they're going for. 
I think it's interesting that SAGE, the group of scientific advisors, came up with four reasons why. So models have shown that we might reach 100,000 cases a day at the peak of this wave that we're currently in. And they've identified four reasons why that could be particularly bad. Obviously, the number of hospitalizations and deaths will rise. And we're looking at potentially 100 to 200 deaths a day, 1,000 to 2,000 new hospitalizations every day. So really high figures. But apart from that, they've cited you know work absences, people having to take time off work because of COVID, long COVID, which is obviously a really serious issue. Yeah. And as you said, the possibility of new variants arising, which is an issue not just for us in this country, but for the global effort to bring this pandemic to an end. So, you know, in spite of those four really strong reasons why this is potentially a terrible idea the government's gone ahead with it but but no they haven't said specifically that it's a herd immunity strategy but it does seem to be what what they're what they're going for yeah I mean as you say we're not we're perhaps not in an emergency situation anymore and that's why they feel they can do it and but we had the health secretary Sajid Javid say that this lifting of restrictions was irreversible which is such a weird thing to say and lots of people are wondering whether that that word will come back to bite him I mean, in other countries, they have had to do U-turns and reinforce restrictions when cases come back. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a a too soon to say that you can't put put restrictions back in place. And certainly a lot of the scientists that we spoke to in the story that we that we've run about this in this week's magazine said that um, it's definitely something that they're going to have to think about bringing restrictions, at least some some restrictions back in. And it also seems a little bit strange to me that the modelling shows, and the government has said this, that people need to carry on being cautious. You know, it might be called Freedom Day, but you can't just go mad, saying that we have to take a softly softly approach to, to easing our kind of personal restrictions, I guess. So why not just keep those in place for a little bit longer, if that's yeah. what the modelling shows is safer. But I think it, it, the, it's interesting just to go back uh, to the point about herd immunity, because it is true that this is probably like what you think of as a herd immunity strategy, but also vaccination is a herd immunity strategy. So maybe that's why we don't hear it talked about in those terms so often. We are going for herd immunity by vaccinating people. But a large, large section of the population is still unvaccinated, including children. And uh, immunity from vaccination or from infection will wane after a period of time. So it's perhaps sort of we're chasing our tails there a little bit. You know, you mentioned young children and they have not been vaccinated yet. and Uh, You know, it's horrendous to think about this, but I suppose government scientists and statisticians have have had to make a calculation where they estimate the infection rate in children. And we know that the fatality rate is much lower, but still it is there. So someone's had to estimate the likely number of deaths in children. And the decision has been made that we'll accept that number and uh, open up society. Yeah, that's right. And I think it is, it's a really serious issue. So I think you can think about it in two ways. One is the risk of, you know, serious illness and death in children is much lower than it is in, in adults and in specifically in vulnerable people. And I'm not talking about there are vulnerable children as well, but otherwise healthy children without underlying conditions. So it is much lower. And so when we're talking about, about vaccinations, we're kind of doing a cost benefit analysis. There are some issues around myocarditis, heart problems um, with some of the vaccines that have been seen in younger people. So I think that's why the government's being particularly cautious about approving the vaccine for children. So that's an argument to be made there. But if we're not going to vaccinate children, then 
there's also a very strong argument to be made that we should protect them by putting in the same measures that we put in to protect adults because even though they're not at risk they are unvaccinated a very very large number of children will get covid a proportion of those will become ill and some Mm. of them will die and one other thing that needs to be said is that although we've got fantastic vaccination now across uh, the uk it means the fatality rate will be much lower than in previous waves Um, But it doesn't mean that the National Health Service isn't still under an incredible amount of pressure. And we're we're hearing stories of of flu and other respiratory diseases coming back now, especially now we've got no social distancing. So if we we add those cases onto the pressure that the NHS is already under with COVID, that's why doctors and nurses are saying it's, it's looking very bad again. Yeah, definitely. I think everybody we've spoken to has said that the NHS will come under pressure as cases go up. And, you know, you've got the routine care, which is again going to have to take the back seat to these new COVID cases that are coming in. And as you say, in the winter, when uh, flu and other respiratory illnesses rise again, then that's just going to be added pressure on the NHS. So I think it would be naive to think that we are not going to end up in a situation where there is going to be significant pressure on the NHS. So now the eyes of the world are on us to see how this Delta wave now plays out. They are, and it feels uncomfortable being inside that experiment. Um, the The prediction of what's going to happen is we're going to see this huge wave um, over the summer months, peaking in August probably. And it's important to say there's a lot of variation in the modelling, so it's really hard to say exactly what's going to happen. But people are calling this an exit wave, so... That's perhaps a metaphor maybe for the for the herd immunity, but the idea being that you're going to get this huge wave of infection and then it's going to go down again once you know the majority of the people have have become immune uh, and actually we have been talking to people who are saying this idea of an exit wave is a complete kind of false analogy because it's not going to be an exit wave there will be more more waves after that, so I think that will be an interesting thing to see and probably something that a lot of other countries are looking to us over the next few months and watching what happens after that big peak, how, how quickly it goes down and how soon the next peak comes along. Okay, it's time for Life Form of the Week. And a few of you have complained that we are too animal focused in this segment. Uh, so if you're one of those people, this is for you. Chels, what have we got? Tomatoes. Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, what about tomatoes? <laughs> well, it turns out that when tomato plants are being eaten by insects, they use electrical signals to send this alert to the rest of the plant, sort of similar to the way our nervous systems warn our bodies of damage. Right. Well, so plants obviously don't have a nervous system with neurons like animals do. So how do they do it? Yeah, plants don't have neurons. But they do have these long, thin tubes called xylem and phloem for moving sap between their roots and their leaves and fruit. And charged ions flowing in and out of these tubes can push electrical signals around different parts of the plant in a similar way that neurons do. Although we know a lot less about this process in plants than we do, we say, in animals. Right. Matt, but I do love the experiment they've done here to look at this now. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, The biologists who did this study put small cherry tomato plants inside Faraday cages, which block external electrical fields. And then they put the caterpillars on the surface of the tomatoes within plastic bags. So they had these electrodes placed in the fruit stalks, and they found that the patterns of electrical activity, they changed during and after when the, the caterpillars started eating. They also varied depending on whether the fruits were ripe or green. Wow, so it's 
it's really quite flexible behavior on the part of the plant and the signals can carry this different information. So what's the response to the signals? Well, the messages seem to help the plant sort of muster defenses, like releasing hydrogen peroxide, which is a reactive chemical, and that can help combat microbial infections and damaged tissues. Yeah, we've known for a long time that there there is a kind of plant neuroscience. Um, It started from an Indian biophysicist called Jagdish Chandra Bose in 1900, and he suggested that there was a kind of plant nervous system. And like you say, it was located in the phloem. But it wasn't until 1992 that electrical signals were kind of inferred in tomato plants. And now, as you're saying, now it's just actually been demonstrated. It takes a lot of patience, huh, <laughs> to keep at that. <laughs> but just because plants don't really move, or, well, I guess I should say they don't move as fast as animals, it doesn't mean they don't have complex behavior. Yeah, definitely. Um, like we heard a few weeks ago on the podcast from Suzanne Simard, um, and she's the woman who discovered the wood wide web. That was the... <laughs> underground fungal network that trees use to communicate. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Time out. We wanted to tell you about a new podcast we're really into. Yes, The Conversation Weekly is produced by The Conversations Global Network. So you know how The Conversation has academics from all over the world writing about their latest research? Uh, This is them talking about it. It's The Conversation in podcast form, and it covers a variety of topics, including science, environment and health. Yeah, the one I just heard was all about lab-grown meat and plant-based meat substitutes, which is very cool. Yeah, it's all about the science, psychology and future of meat alternatives. The Conversation Weekly is all about scholars talking about brand new research and how the world works. Search for The Conversation Weekly or get it wherever you get your podcasts or go to theconversation.com slash newscientist to find out more. Now for a trip to Mars, where NASA's Curiosity rover has found signals of methane coming from an unknown source. Yeah, so this is more on the saga of methane on Mars. And it's all very exciting because on Earth, around 95% of the methane is produced by living organisms. Right. It's really tantalizing. But, you know, it's not quite certain yet that that's where it's coming from. So what has Curiosity actually found? Well, the rover carries an instrument that measures methane and the environment around it. And in general, there's this background level of about 0.41 parts per billion of methane on Mars. But on six occasions, Curiosity measured pretty big spikes up to 10 parts per billion. Curiosity is on Gale Crater, isn't it? Um, it's been there since 2012, just trolling around there, mm-hmm. um, which is big. It's a big crater, 150 kilometers across. So how have researchers managed to pinpoint the methane or have they managed to pinpoint where it's coming from so they can investigate? They haven't quite yet. It's a, it's a little bit like finding a needle in the haystack, you know. The European Space Agency has an orbiter currently around Mars called the Trace Gas Orbiter. And as its name suggests, it is measuring gas <laughs> in the atmosphere. <laughs> but it hasn't seen the same spikes that Curiosity measured on the surface It's unclear why that is. It could be that that's related to the fact that the rover is doing its measurements at night when that Martian atmosphere is calmer. But the hope is that these detections continue and that scientists can pin down where it's coming from. And, you know, more importantly, what's producing it? Um, It just occurs to me, we're talking about Curiosity, but that's the old rover, isn't it? What, What Can Perseverance help out? Or is that nowhere near anywhere where methane's coming out? Yeah, the landing sites for Perseverance and Curiosity are thousands of kilometers apart. And, you know, that's on purpose. 
the teams that set them up want to do as much varied science as possible with as few rovers as we have. And it also only moves, you know, 4.2 centimeters a second. So I think (laughs) rolling over there (laughs) to meet up with Curiosity would be pretty uh, tricky. So could the methane be any sign of microbial life? I mean, it certainly could be, but it could also be some geological process, or it may be connected to asteroids or comets that hit Mars. So it's still a mystery. What's your hunch, Chels? You know, I tend to be skeptical that we'll find life on Mars. Um, but <laughs> if we were to find any, microbial life is the best bet. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you have to be skeptical about something massive like this, but something odd is going on because, um, you know, methane only lasts a very short time, 300 years or, or so. Mm-hmm. So given that it's been detected, um, it means something is actively producing it. Uh, and like you say, it could be probably is, I guess, geological activity. I mean, I think I feel there was microbial life once on Mars, like billions of years ago. Uh, So it's possible there's something still kind of clinging on under the surface. But, um, you know, we mustn't get carried away. It would be the greatest discovery of all time. So, uh, yeah, let's just hold our horses. That's the sci-fi alert. And this week, it's not even us making uh, any spurious connection between (laughs) science in the news and science fiction. No, the researchers have done it for us this time. This is the discovery of, well, I guess an entity is the best way to put it, because it's not a life form, but it is a thing made of DNA. It's a genetic entity, a stretch of DNA that inhabits single-celled organisms called archaea. Yeah, um, archaea are one of the three major domains of life, with the other two being bacteria and eukaryotes. Uh, Eukaryotes, of course, being the domain that we're in. Um, And so, yeah, this genetic element has been nicknamed Borgs (laughs) by the researchers, um, because just like the aliens in Star Trek, they assimilate, uh, they assimilate the biology of other creatures. And these Borg, these genetic elements assimilate and scavenge genes from other microorganisms and incorporate them into the genome of their host. Yeah, they're really weird. And they're massive, up to about 1 million DNA letters long, which is a third of the size of their host's genome. And they come in 19 different forms. So the biologists who discovered them have sequenced four of these forms, and they named them purple, black, sky and lilac borgs. Yeah. So what do they do? Well, we've just been talking about methane on Mars, and the Borgs here have been discovered in methane-eating microbes. The lilac Borg in particular contains genes that could turbocharge the microbes' ability to consume methane. I do like uh, that it's called the the lilac Borg. Yeah, it's a great name. (laughs) Uh, So they they are weird, and the structure's weird as well, because unlike uh, normal genetic elements like this that we found before, and people have looked at these sort of um, other genetic elements that shift around in microorganisms, they're normally circular, but this Borg DNA is linear and it contains many sections of repeated sequences and also many lots of uh, protein coding regions, which is also really unusual. Yeah, they're really cool and, you know, worth studying a lot more because we want and we need to understand better how microbes consume methane. Yeah, I mean, methane, really powerful greenhouse gas. Um, as we've said, it doesn't last that long in the atmosphere, not as long as CO2 but it has a much stronger warming effect than carbon dioxide. So we we need to get rid of it. And finding microbes that could do that for us could be really useful.
Okay, at the top of the show, we heard the launch of Blue Origin's New Shepard spacecraft. That was their first crewed space flight. Uh, It was an 11-minute flight to suborbital space and back. And the rocket landed autonomously, and the crew capsule came down separately on parachutes. Did you watch that, Chelsea? Was that that a bit early for you? Oh, I was up early, watching in my PJs over coffee. (laughs) Um, There were a few firsts chalked up with this flight. It was the first flight on a private spacecraft with paying customers. And it was also notable for carrying the oldest and the youngest people into space. You know, Wally Funk, who's 82. We spoke about her a few weeks ago. Yeah, Wally Funk. (laughs) Yeah, She's the oldest person now to ever have gone to space, uh, as well as a Dutch physics student named Oliver, who's just 18. Yeah, his dad paid for his ticket. Uh, His dad's in private equity. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this is it, the classic case of the new breed of spacefarer. Yeah, I saw someone saying that, you know, we had the golden age of space travel in the 60s, and but this is the gilded age now. Yeah, right, exactly. But look, let's talk about what happens next for Blue Origin. Uh, here's Jeff Bezos speaking after the flight. We're going to build a road to space so that our kids and their kids can build the future. And we need to do that. We need to do that to solve the problems here on Earth. This is not about escaping Earth. He said they're going to build ferociously. He said it's going to be a decades-long enterprise, but they will build a road to space. Uh, a road to space. <laughs> and, and it was interesting that he said ferociously. And, uh, you know, that is an acknowledgement of how far behind SpaceX they are. They're years behind and they really need to uh, be ferocious to get back, uh, to get back up, up level. Yeah, I think everyone, you know, sort of has to acknowledge that. Bezos is more slow and steady than Musk but just as ambitious. Uh, New Shepard is the first in a series of planned spacecraft from Blue Origin, and the design of it is a bit weird at first, but it makes sense when you see the bigger picture of what they're doing. For example, they don't really need to use liquid hydrogen as the propellant for this sort of you know tourism flight. But Bezos says the point is to practice with the spacecraft architecture and the propellants that are scalable. Yeah. Um, so the next one in the pipeline, the next in, in the scale is called the New Glenn, Uh, It's a much larger rocket named after John Glenn, um, and that will take people and cargo into orbit and beyond, uh, they say. It's a huge rocket, seven metres in diameter. Uh, It's expected to launch next year. And Bezos also talked about the next one in the line after that called New Armstrong. And no one's clear on what that launch vehicle will do, but, you know, it's named after Neil Armstrong. And it might be it might be worth speculating that it would carry Uh, their blue moon lunar lander up to the moon. Yeah, this is, you know, completely different to the Virgin Galactic flight we covered last week. Yeah, I mean, for Virgin Galactic, it's all about tourism, uh, tourist flights. But for Blue Origin, it's really not. Um, For them, the financial returns are coming from communications. They've already got contracts to deliver satellites for a range of different countries, uh, for remote sensing, doing imaging of Earth, and eventually to do mining on the moon uh, to get resources from space and and to manufacture stuff on the moon. Bezos says he's doing it to ensure we have a dynamic civilization where our grandchildren have better lives than we do and that we use the resources of space to save this planet. And that excites a lot of people, uh, but it really pisses off a lot of people too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, putting aside the ethics of being the richest person on the planet and how he's achieved his wealth, we're going to be in this really odd situation, aren't we? With so many missions going to the moon. 
Yeah, I mean, we've talked about these on the podcast. These, you know, there's China's got lots of different uh, missions in in progress. The US has, uh, I mean, the China and US space national space agencies, but we've also got SpaceX and Blue Origin going to the moon. So you could easily see a situation where not only you've got China and the US, you know, not cooperating on the moon, uh, and you might expect that, which would still be disappointing uh, if you are a sort of a Star Trek, we've had Star Trek on. If you're a sort of Star Trek optimist, <laughs> you'd imagine a sort of global cooperation for space exploration. But we could also have these two American companies, you know, up on the South Pole of the Moon, snark- snarking across each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, welcome to the American dream, right? <laughs> yeah. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Kat Delange, and thanks to you for listening. As always, do go to newscientist.com slash pod20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. That link again, newscientist.com slash pod20. That's it. Do spread the word. Thanks again and see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.